Hello and welcome to Interpreting India. I'm Srinath Raghavan and this is a podcast presented by Carnegie India. Every week we bring to you voices from India and around the world as we unpack the role of technology, the economy and foreign policy in shaping India's relationship with the world. In the wake of the recent coronavirus outbreak, we are now recording and producing episodes of Interpreting India remotely. So please bear with us if there are any issues with sound quality. The coronavirus pandemic has brought home to us the importance of the state and its capacity on multiple fronts. The crisis is underlined as few events have in recent decades. The state's hobsian function of providing security and keeping social unrest in check. Policing has acquired a peculiar salience in this context, quite different from its traditional role. In India, while the importance of effective policing is acknowledged in principle in practice we are far short of having a capable effective and accountable police force for a country of our size and diversity again while the need for police reforms is widely recognized a range of political institutional and bureaucratic hurdles have stymied these attempts over decades a recent study the first of its kind called india justice report assesses the state capacity of india's police force and identifies key areas where reforms are most urgently needed the report also focuses on three other pillars of justice provision in india the judiciary prisons and legal aid in this episode of interpreting india i am joined by maya darwala who is currently senior advisor at tata trusts and the commonwealth human rights initiative previously she served as the director of the commonwealth human rights initiative for 20 years until she stepped down in september 2016 a barrister by training maya is actively engaged in numerous human rights initiatives and focuses on issues relating to civil liberties including police reform prison reform right to information legal empowerment women's rights freedom of expression and human rights advocacy capacity building maya has steered the india justice report as its chief editor and a member of the steering committee itself she is a recipient of the nani palkiwala award for protection and preservation of civil liberties in india maya welcome to the podcast thank you so much maya could we start by getting from you uh, an overview really of the india justice report i mean this is such an important and in some ways the first exercise of its kind so i'm keen to understand what were the motivations behind this study and if you could also talk a little bit broadly about what you think are the headline conclusions uh, which came out of the report itself you know a, a lot of people work on on specializations and and they work on silos in uh, even the ministries and even departments civil society they work on one subsection of the whole delivery of justice so we wanted to bring all of the statistics etc that were available and put them together in a way that would be simple for both practitioners duty holders media civil society and most importantly of government to have a look at and see well this is what the statistics tell us we were determined not to put any judgments into the report we just wanted to put the statistics together and the statistics to show 
what is their capacity to deliver? People imagine that if you go to a court and the court doesn't reply to you or, 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 or takes too long, that it's kind of some kind of motivation or corruption. And some of that may be true. But really, we wanted to look at, at a deep dive into the various problems of structure and see whether they were real. And indeed, they were real. One of the broad findings was that, in my view, and I think if you look at the statistics, uh, the finances that are expended on various subsystems of the uh, justice system are low. For instance, in the judiciary, you find that increases in spending or increases in allocation don't keep up with the overall budgets. Across the country, the spend on the judiciary is perhaps lower than 1% or just about near 1%. On the other hand, in another subsystem, which is the police, the spend can go between 3 and 5%. Then infrastructure is a real problem in the sense that you don't have enough courts. And because you don't have enough judges, you don't notice that you don't have enough courts. But if you had all the judges that you should have, then you probably have a shortfall of something like 4,000 court orders. So workload means increased, huge workloads. Therefore, you can explain how there are over th uh, 30 million cases hanging fire or that 25% of all cases take over five years to resolve. Diversity was another problem. And when you come to the police in that case, uh, you know, uh, the country has promised itself that in its uh, police and in various government organizations that the desired percentage of women will be about 30-35%. But there are hardly any states, just three or four states, where the percentage is over even 10%. Some go to 18%, but they are all committed to between 30-35%. A last finding which I did want to talk about, Srinath, was that the urban and rural divide that we see in many other areas of governance is also reflected in judicial services being provided to the rural. Much fewer facilities available in the rural areas than in urban concentrations. You know, the report looks at, you know, a set of things, right? You look at police, you look at judiciary, you look at prison reform, uh, you know, you, you look at, uh, you know, access to justice and so on. But perhaps in today's conversation, we'd like to focus uh, a bit more in depth on the policing side of things itself. And uh, it just seems to me that, you know, in the first place, India seems to have fewer number of policemen per capita than many other countries, uh, particularly Western countries, but also countries which are at a similar level of economic development as ours, right? So one of the main things that you focus in the report is, of course, on how various states are doing in terms of just getting personnel and so on. But the second point which you mentioned, which I think is actually uh, one of the very striking things about the report is, you know, the importance really of having a police force, which in some ways at least captures the diversity of this society around us, right? I mean, it, it, it's very difficult to have a police force 
which you know which effectively works so closely with the community but which does not at all have the kind of broader diversities which the community has so in you know you, you already spoke about women and how many states are unable to do uh, but the report also you know quite rightly points out that you know religious minorities muslims particularly are quite underrepresented we don't have that many transgender kind of representation within the police uh, so could you just talk a little bit both about overall numbers uh, in terms of you know policing itself but also this question of diversity a little more yeah some of the you know we could not get a hang of uh, all of the diversities that you are talking about uh, because the statistics are not there for them but the statistics for women are indeed there for them so we could talk about that uh, to begin with and it would uh, amuse you though the benchmark is to reach 33% of women in police at the rate at which they are being recruited you will find that states like madhya pradesh will take 294 years to get to that can you imagine that and maharashtra will take 14 years if it continues to recruit like that so there are suggestions that have been made long ago uh about how to get more diversity into police especially where in terms of women there has been a, a lot of attention uh one of the things is when you're recruiting instead of recruiting only 33% of whatever is needed for that year or two years you recruit fully so that you increase the number suddenly but then there is no back end infrastructure to accommodate that kind of thing everything has a knock on effect hmm? the other uh, diversities are stsc where there are stsc uh uh requirements the sc recruitment the most of the states do manage to fill these vacancies at the constabulary level but when you get to the officer level then then there is not that much data and um uh, when you get muslim uh, minorities in terms of religious minorities they used to be in the data that was produced by government agencies like the bpr and the but i noticed that for some time now they have not been there i think it's very important to have diversity in policing as well as in everything else but in policing since we are talking about that i think it's really really important because they are policing a public that in itself is diverse in caste class religion uh, economics where they stay and if this is reflected in the police you're going to have a much more empathetic police this has been shown in places like the us the uk which have battled with bias within the police for a long time now in the context of policing itself uh, you know one of the you know to me puzzling questions really is about you know why is it that we have not managed to evolve a policing culture which in some ways comports with the kind of huge liberal democracy that we are right in a sense our policing culture seems to be rather more heavily sort of influenced by the colonial origins of indian policing rather than 
keeping with the norms and standards that you would expect in a 21st century liberal democracy. And, you know, there are many ways in which uh, this is true uh, in, in terms of how the police kind of conducts operations. There are various, you know, issues around sensitization about human rights, their protection violation. And of course, at the you know, very end of this extreme, you know, there are gross abuses uh, of which the Indian police is periodically sort of accused. So what in your uh, reading really is holding this kind of a cultural transformation of the police force beyond issues of nuts and bolts in terms of, you know, bringing in diversity, et cetera, is concerned. Because even if you do bring in diversity, but if the police uh, has an organizational culture, which is really out of kilter with what we need for a democracy like ours, then that is a big problem. Yes. And I think that both the government as well as the police uh, establishment have to recognize that they are out of kilter uh, with whatever the aspirations of a liberal democracy are. And I think that there's still huge denial of that. So uh, one, uh, a, one issue, the reason for the way that the police function today is its structure. It is extremely hierarchical. The police will immediately tell you that it's based on colonial policing without going to the second sentence with if it is, if it is based on colonial policing, which was a control and command structure, which was policing meant for the regime in power at the time, then why have they not, why has no opportunity been taken to change it? Uh, so one issue is the structure. The second issue, and I think uh, a very equally important, is the structure suits certain interests, certain powers, certain authority, and therefore it there is a sort of vested uh, companionship between police, political executive, bureaucracy, etc., and it would appear that the last, sometimes I think that the last consideration is uh, the people who the police are supposed to serve. The police still calls itself or is generally called a police force. Now, in a democracy, the first thing you do is change it to a police service and really work to, to fulfill that notion of service. In the olden days, it was you had to uh, prevent crime, you had to uh, investigate crime and, and catch criminals and then give them over to the judiciary. But today, we talk about the protection of life, of property, and as I keep on saying, the protection of rights. You have to protect the Constitution. That is why you are an officer of the law. It's not enough to be law enforcing. You have to be law upholding. So you have to obey the law in the way that you process your policing. You can see that in the handling of the present situation where there is panic, where there are people going home, where there is breaking down of, uh, you know, not breaking down of law and order. There certainly hasn't been that. But millions of people are on the move. There is huge disruption. Uh, now, you can either treat it as assisting to sort out and prevent the more dire uh, consequences of a public health 
crisis or you can treat it as a law and order situation. And unfortunately, you can't go ask the police who have been trained in a certain way for all these years and allowed to carry on that way and say overnight you're going to be of great assistance but not treat this like a law and order problem. But what we don't know is how do we get to those solutions given the vested interests that are so deeply embedded in the police. Right. And it also seems to me that, you know, of all the various kinds of parts of the government, the police is perhaps the most politicized. And I'm talking here particularly at the level of states, right? I mean, there are some states where it's almost the norm that when you have a new government and a new chief minister in place, pretty much the entire top brass of the state's police undergoes a total, you know, it's a total change. It's almost as if there are some people who are identified with certain parties uh, and so on, right? And, and you know, that level of politicization is something that you don't find with many other things. And do you think that could be another contribution to, you know, in a sense, that blocks this kind of transformation that, you know, you're talking about here? Absolutely. And some of what you are saying, the what we used to talk in harsh tones about the influence of the political executive, the influence of the uh, uh, of the legislator, the elected legislator uh, on the police uh, has now actually crept its way into legislation where postings, transfers, uh, career advancement is in the hands of uh, the chief minister, the home minister or a committee thereof. Now, uh, the Supreme Court in 2006, in one of the public interest litigations that was brought actually by a former policeman, had dealt with this and said that you must create a state security commission, which was a bipartisan uh, organization, which would lay down the general policy for the police, provision it, and then watch its performance. That is the way that it is done in many different countries. Then it created uh, a police ex uh, establishment board, which would deal internally, which was an internal mechanism for the merit system to come in transparently. But all that has been uh, subverted, I would say, completely. Equally by the force of the political executive and the legislature on the establishment, but also because the leadership is not as deeply vested in the establishment as it is in perhaps listening to and being obedient to the political executive. These are not underprivileged people, uh, Srinath. These are people with power of the law, uniform, good salaries good equipment, and they're the top of the tree. And do you think the kind of divide between the Indian police service, which is the All India Service, and policing, which is a state subject and every state has its own police force, uh, do you think that that kind of uh, you know divide also exacerbates this dynamic that you're talking about? Yes, I, I think I can say I believe it must do, but the degree to which it must do, I'm, I'm not sure about. Uh, because I haven't studied it in depth and I don't have the evidence to speak that way. But I think, yes, when you have two cadres, one of which will not rise except through 
quite difficult means, but who knows the ground situation perhaps because it comes from there. So I'm sure that that creates a kind of kinds of tension. But there is also, I believe, now deep concern within the police itself, from what I hear, uh, between the other ranks, so-called other ranks, and the leaderships. You know, because one is almost a managerial cadre, and the other one is a sort of implementing cadre. And they have tremendous power, the implementing cadre. They have tremendous knowledge of the local. They know how to work the system, how to get the best out of the system, as well as to game the system. So, to what extent, and the, are their loyalties absolutely in one direction, like an arrow from the lower ranks to the upper ranks? Or are the loyalties divided between the local power structures, the state power structures? All of that has to come into the equation when you're understanding police performance. No, I think that's very uh, perceptive. And, you know, it also seems to me that, you know, if you compare the police with another institution that you know very well, which is the army, right? I mean, see, the, the army has a certain distinctive, uh, you know, institutional culture and identity of its own because it is separated from the society, right? I mean, you, you keep the army deliberately separate from the society. You created these cantonments, you created these kinds of structures uh, within which it operates. Whereas the police has, as you said, has to be embedded in the society that it serves. So, uh, in a sense, these challenges are going to be that much more difficult to mold and to control, isn't it? Yes. And I'm, I think one of my regrets is that the police have been modeled on a militaristic style. The army has a very limited function, and that is to be on the borders and protect us from outside aggression. We cannot think of our public as being the subjects of watchfulness in case they get aggressive. I think that's an extremely unfair, wrong, unconstitutional view of how you must look at your society. This issue of separation of the police in lines, in privilege, in where they are deployed and situated, where they owe their loyalties, I think is extremely wrong. The police must owe their loyalty to the law and nothing else. Now, this is not a pipe dream. This is how real policing works. And the second thing is it must be embedded in society. In other jurisdictions, police are required to live within the jurisdictions that they work in or not outside so many miles of jurisdiction because then they are vested in the society that they live in. And society can keep them accountable locally. It is the local accountability which is missing. Let's talk a little bit about, you know, bread and butter issues, so to speak. Uh, in your opening remarks, you talked about the kind of financial constraints that the police uh, faces uh, in, in, in aggregate terms. And, and that seems to be one of the major impediments to this kind of transformation, modernization of the uh, policing system itself. Uh, could we talk a little bit about uh, that particular part of your findings in the report? Uh, the police would say to you that they are poorly, uh, poorly staffed, poor infrastructure, poor uh, modern equipment, and 
I have not done sufficiently a study to tell you what, so what is enough. The issue is what are you doing with what you have? How well is it deployed? Who gets the lion's share? Is the lion's share given to headquarters? Is it given to uh, equipment and comforts, etc.? I, I, I I'm not in. Uh, I'm not particularly emphasizing comforts, but facilities to the higher cadres, because it is a pyramidal structure, right? In my view, the thing to look at if you are looking at the economics and the fin- finances of policing is how much money is given to the police station. And how much money is given to outreach and given to fulfilling the basic needs of an area. You will hear bitterly police complaining at the grassroots that they have the most stringent rules about how they use uh, transport. Where petrol and transport and jurisdiction don't match each other. All of these anomalies have to be looked at and I'm hoping that the statistics that are there will help in doing this. Unfortunately, a lot of the statistics are gathered at state level, a lot at central level to the BPRND, and a lot are kept in the local. Now, if some of those statistics could be mashed together so that you had a profile of every single station, what its needs and requirements were, And how a budget is made. Uh, Budgets are made in quite a centralized way. Again, I wish I knew more to tell you about how much voice there is of the constabulary that goes into the baking of a budget and goes into decision making about uh, equipment, time off, days off, the needs of the public, all of that. There is a great deal of data. You will find a lot of data on crime, how much, how much work there is in a police station, etc. But it needs to be much more granular. That when we talk about modernizing the police and providing them with better infrastructure and better facilities, I do not mean providing them with state-of-the-art weaponry or equipment. In the absence of accountability and in the absence of the reorientation that I was talking about, that would be hugely dangerous for society. And the other lot of people who are never taken into consideration is the public. What does the public around a police station want of its police station? That is something that many, many jurisdictions take account of. So your report, you know, also covers pretty much all the states and in that sense is extremely comprehensive. And I was wondering, you know, when we are talking about policing, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the report does a state-wise ranking. But, uh, but, but do you think there are, um, you know, some states which are doing well for reasons that perhaps other states would emulate? In a sense, is it more structural or is it boils around more uh, questions of leadership within states? Uh, or is it patterns of recruitment? Uh, I'm just wondering, you know, if, do you think there are anything that, you know, we can sort of pick out from what has made the better states the better ones 
and uh, use that as a template with obviously with local variations to other states which are lagging behind in 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 these matrices and these in the index that you've uh, sort of drawn up yeah um you know the truth is that statistics only tell half a story right yeah and sometimes they get the story wrong also and i i would be the first to admit that but that doesn't mean that the statistics have no use in overall rank you find maharashtra coming first kerala tamil nadu punjab haryana these are the first five states hmm, overall yeah and then the lowest uh, at the bottom of the of the pyramid uh, uttar pradesh is right at the bottom then bihar coming up a little bit jharkhand coming up a bit more uttarakhand rajasthan andhra pradesh going like that when you look at police itself you see that that tamil nadu is number 1 because if you take all of the matrices that we looked at uh finance workload diversity trends uh uh budgets all of that when we looked at that uh tamil nadu averaged on many but it came out first kerala on the other hand which is honestly got a first uh, a very very good police in the sense that it has changed its police act it has consulted with the public in order to get to that act it has got many outreach programs etc unfortunately came 13th in rank because the diversity its diversity in relationship to women particularly has actually gone lower in the year that we took as the benchmark year which was 2017 than earlier years previous years and then the environment the same kind of policing uh or the the benefits of the environment that kerala has would perhaps not be available say in uttar pradesh but because policing is a state subject the states must make it specific to that state now both madhya pradesh and uttar pradesh have got quite amazing facilities for dealing with crimes against women and they are certainly worth emulating so you find pockets of good practice but and also individuals of good uh good inclination that do a great deal in terms of changing curriculums improving uh training but they seem not to get embedded and then reflected in the performance of the police so uh you spoke a bit about you know what the role of the police in the current covid crisis uh is and how they should be thinking about their role and so on but you know as we kind of look forward to the times of you know in the post kind of covid world so to speak i mean do you think uh the crisis also gives us an opportunity to you know take another very fundamental look at what we want by way of policing in this country um you know because there has been a lot of talk and report about police reforms you know there have been a number of cag reports which talk about you know all kinds of problems that the police force faces you know your statistics have captured so many but but still reform has been very hard in this particular domain so i'm just wondering a you know if you could reflect a little bit on what those really structural impediments have been 
And secondly, whether this particular crisis may actually be a moment which could catalyze a wider conversation around the need for this kind of more responsible democratic policing, which, which, as you so nicely put it, you know, believes that its first and only role is to uphold the law. It must believe that. And do they believe that? And is that reflected in their behavior, in their performance? That has to be seen. You know, unfortunately, uh, we do look at police very much through a lens of their wrongdoing. And I think that is unfair. I think one should look at the police. Of, there's no doubt in my mind that they must be held accountable and held strongly accountable for every single wrongdoing that they do. There is no compromise on that. On the other hand, what we don't look at is the performance of the police. There's no great matrix uh, uh, that is being formulated which was hoped for in the state security commissions, which is transparent, that we will have 17 different lenses through which we measure the performance of the police. And then because we have got these lenses there, we will give the chief of police a mandate and we will tell him that here is what do you need? We will provision him. And when we have provisioned him, he will report back to us and that report will be taken to the legislature. It will be discussed there and we will see whether last year he did well, this year he's doing better and his job will depend on it. That would be the clean way of doing everything. When And that would be all the way down. The police chief would probably tell his cohort and probably tell his DCPs and all of those people, uh, his his. Uh, that this is how we are going to perform. And there must be in that performance an evaluation by public satisfaction. How satisfied are you with the police? Today, if you go out and ask people how satisfied they are with the police, you the answer may be varied in varied jurisdictions. But we need to bring all of that together to say this is this. This is how satisfied people are. In many jurisdictions, you will find that people who have actually dealt with the police rather than going by gossip and perception, find that the police are much more helpful, useful, and they trust the police much more than people who have a general perception but have never met them. I think a benchmark indicator of how the police are performing will come from when you speak to women and when you speak to children, when you speak to vulnerable vulnerable areas of society and you ask them how they perceive the police, not how they have been handled by the police, but how do they perceive the police? Yes. You can always keep crime down simply by never having anybody go to the police station. And our crime statistics are a crying shame. We must have honest statistics. And to get back a little bit to the question that you asked about reform, um, Srinath, we know what the problem is. We've known what the problem is from the Frazier report of 1902-1903. Right. We have mashed that problem and and brought it in the in the most detailed forms in uh, uh, the the committees that sat just after the emergency. 
the the National Police Commission reports. Then yes. there are state reports. Then there are the CAG reports. Then there are the civil society reports. So it's not that we don't know the problem. And the police themselves will be happy to talk to you about their problems. But we also know the solutions because the solutions have been given time and time again. Hmm. But they are almost never acted upon. Or if, like the 2006 solutions that were provided by, uh, in the Prakash Singh case by the Supreme Court, they are subverted or they are not at all complied with. And even when they are complied with, you can't just stop at, at six directions that were given by the Supreme Court. You have to actually work at year-on-year improvements of performance and also satisfaction within the police themselves about the job that they are doing factored in. You always hear policemen complaining about the, the hours that they have to keep. Now, one of the things that the Telangana police has done, for instance, is they pay their police much better. They also give them uh, regular offs. They also give them uh, shifts which have been worked into policing. There are studies by people like Mr. Kamal Kumar, who are experts in this field, to say that if you have 12-hour shifts, if you have 8-hour shifts, if you rationalize the way that you use your materials, your, your transport, etc., you will get far better policing from the police that you already have. Training is essential. And training is not standardized. Training is ad hoc. And it is an open secret that nobody wants to go to training institutions. Why do policemen alone have to train policemen? You have psychologists, medical people, uh, all sorts of other kinds of professionals who would widen every constable's view. And I have another little hobby horse, which is that When you recruit people, you are recruiting with them all the societal prejudices and biases that that person comes from, whether it's in his village or his economic status or his gender. He brings them all into the police. You have to bring in people who you can reorient to obey nothing but the law. This is not being done. This is not even understood sufficiently for it to be done. There is not the underlying research you need to decide what should be there. Maya, thanks so much uh, for joining us today. This report is uh, extremely important. It is really eye-opening, eye-popping, in fact. Uh, We will link the report to the show notes, and we hope uh, both the reports and these very reasoned arguments that you've sort of presented today get a much wider hearing and we really have the kind of broader conversation around what kind of a police does Indian democracy really need and how do we get to that kind of a force. Uh, Maya Darwala, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Interpreting India. Stay safe and don't forget to wash your hands. For more information about the podcast and the production team, 
You can follow us on social media and visit our webpage.